This show exists because of listeners like you. So during the episodes released in February, I'm asking that you become a recurring supporter of the podcast by signing up at patreon.com. As a thank you for doing so, you can receive unique rewards, like a weekly update posted every Friday, early access to episodes with higher quality audio, the ability to enter exclusive giveaways for books, tickets to events, and other permaculture resources, and so much more. My goal is to reach 150 Patreon supporters by the time episode 1807 is released on March 10th. There are currently 134 as I record this. Find out more at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. And if you prefer to give on a one-time basis, consider donating a dollar an episode. It would really help. For one-time donations, you can give online at paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast or drop something in the post. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. This is The Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. In this episode, Karen Lanier joins me to talk about what she learned while writing The Woman Hobby Farmer, a book that helps us look inside of ourselves and to decide whether or not we're ready to farm, and to ask the question, why do I want to farm? Those inquiries arise from Karen's life experiences with an aunt who farmed, and continued through the interviews she conducted with women farmers, including some folks, to my delight and surprise, who I've spoken with and gotten to know over the years. Taking those stories and lived moments, Karen shows the importance of showing up, participating, and most importantly, listening. Though we may come from a particular place regarding agriculture and farming, we have a lot to learn from our friends, neighbors, and family who picked up the hoe or plow before us. Enjoy this conversation with Karen, and I'll join you again afterward. Then, Karen, can you give us a bit of your biography and background and how you came to write The Woman Hobby Farmer? My start in life was in Texas. I grew up in Amarillo, which is the High Plains area of Texas. And so brief biography is I moved a lot after I was old enough to move away. And I kind of became nomadic. And I hopped around from park service jobs to college to back to college again a few years later. And I worked a lot in photography labs. My primary interests were photography humanities, just kind of exploring the intersection of culture and nature. And so I found ways to do that more through traveling and working in national and state parks. And when I finally figured out what I wanted to do, I went back to college and got more focused on just making documentaries. And it's kind of hard to find a job (laughs) to just make a documentary. So I ended up going back into the parks and working with some graphics departments and national parks. And I've, I've just done a lot of different things, tried out a lot of different hats. And I think throughout all of it, I've just realized the common thread is finding really good examples of how people and nature are connecting and benefiting both. And uh, I know there's a lot of issues in this world that really bring us all down. And I'm really inspired by working one-on-one with different 
people and different organizations that are really making a, a big difference. So I started learning a little bit about permaculture, got to visit some different permaculture farms, and began writing about that process. And I think that's part of that solutions-oriented approach and permaculture seemed to embody the types of things that I was interested in doing and the types of things I was interested in in explaining to other people. So um, I eventually started writing articles, and that led to editing and writing the first book, which was called Wildlife in Your Garden. And that I wrote about half of it, and I edited about half of it, and that's about planting and landscaping to create a sanctuary for wildlife and balancing that with your own food production or the aesthetics of your own landscape. Then I finished that book and just about a year later, I well actually less than a year later, I got the offer to write the second book, which was about the woman hobby farmer. The byline on it is female guidance for growing food, raising livestock, and building a farm-based business. I'd say this book is more about why to do the type of farming that requires a more feminine approach. It's something that we can all do and all practice, but it is not necessarily a how-to. It doesn't give you step-by-step when to plant and how to plant and when to harvest, that kind of thing. But it is more of a um, finding the reasons within yourself to do what you want to do. And it was one of the things that I really liked about your book when I received it, and I think it fits with that kind of permaculture solutions-based approach, is that when I first heard about it, I was expecting something that was a bit more story-oriented, that was profiling different women farmers and their experiences. But then when I dug into it, you're providing all kinds of worksheets and assessments that really help people kind of find their own place within this realm of farming to make the decisions about whether or not, you know, they're physically capable to do these kinds of things by doing a a physical health assessment of themselves and then walking through like the business of farming and what animals to raise and things like that. How did you arrive at that place? in deciding to go in that direction for this book? That's a great question. I looked around at what books were out there. Um, this is you know, kind of becoming a niche of market because women farming is uh, it's getting a lot of attention now, and I think that's awesome. There's lots of different ways I could have approached it, and I saw some books out there that were a little more based on how to do it. Here's the tractors that you need and, and what that kind of thing is. And I saw books out there that were more about profiling different women. And I felt like I just went what I would need for myself. And because I I basically am, I am the target audience for this. I am the hobbyist who doesn't have any experience, you know, no formal training. And just sort of, I learned from being around other good farmers. And it feels more like a conversation to me sort of a workshop too, where, you know, you're with all these people who are kind of interested in the same thing. Maybe they've got different levels of experience and they've, they've tried it from different angles. Okay. So then what am I going to take out of that and how am I going to apply it to myself? I felt like it needed to be practical and inspirational, which I think most good conversations are. (laughs) 
And you mentioned about visiting some permaculture-focused farms. My understanding, are you currently in Kentucky? Is that correct? That's right. Mm-hmm. Did you happen to visit Susanna Lane? Yeah. She's a major inspiration for me. You know, completely self-contained, but also community-oriented permaculture farm. And I know I haven't been to that many, but I can't imagine they get much better than that. <laughs> and that's one of the things for me is that I point to Susanna in Kentucky and then Holly Brown in Virginia are the two most successful permaculture farms that I've been to that really do that small scale, deeply integrated system of growing that we often talk about. But what were some of the other farmers and farms that you took inspiration from as you were putting this book together? Well, one thing that I think a lot of people do is they overlook what's in their own backyard (laughs) and also sort of discount life experiences. So I looked at my own life and who had inspired me and my aunt, Judy, who, as I was growing up, she's married to my mom's brother. And that side of the family was always a little bit like they're always living in a more rural place than anybody else in our family. They were always dealing with animals. They were always dirty. They, you know, it was just like that family had a different vibe going than, than the rest of our family. And but I always loved being around them because we got to play with goats and horses and, and they raised collie dogs. And so I remembered always wanting to be around them more and really loving that sense of just, you know, getting your hands dirty and playing outside and, and all that, that, all that came with that. And so as I've grown up and we've all moved around and I've reconnected with that side of my family and, and went back and visited. And now she's in West Virginia with, she still has goats. And as she explains in the book, she began raising goats because my cousin, who's the same age as, as I am, he was lactose intolerant. And so as a baby, she couldn't give him cow's milk. And so she just decided to start raising goats. (laughs) And she had no experience farming, really. She had gardens, but this was, you know, a very practical reason for her to feed her family. And 40 years later, she's still raising those goats and, and the family's still, you know, using the goat milk. So that's one example of another farm that you know, it's, it wasn't that she had this high ideal of being completely self-sufficient and it's a very different approach than where I'm at just going, okay, I want my whole life to be resilient. You know, I want my whole life to feed into a better future for the world. And I think it shows that we can come at this from all different approaches. And I think that's the one of the biggest themes that I've, I've found throughout my book and throughout the work I do is that there's a lot of different ways to approach life and there's a lot of different ways to garden and farm and you uh, can't necessarily predict what it's going to look like. It's one of those, is it better that your aunt was raising those goats for all those years in her own way than to have not done it because of a desire to do it in a particular like sustainable or resilient way? that these practices, even if it's only 1% of what someone might idealize, it's better that we're doing that 1% than not at all. Right. And there's a lot of other people that I've gotten to know here in Kentucky. And and I was actually trying to 
reach out to farmers across the country. And it was funny because every time I got really good contact here, they would refer me to someone else here and someone else here. And so I realized how rich and vibrant our farming community is. And it was really hard to break out of this regional referral after referral to another good farmer here. So I think that really helped me see what is in my own backyard. And I mean, I I did interview a couple people in Texas and one in Oregon, but I, you know, I didn't have to like go to California to hear about how to do really good organic farming. I (laughs) could just go down the road a little bit. So that was enjoyable for me. As we're sitting here and I'm browsing through your book, I see that you've talked with April and Ziggy of The Year of Mud and some other folks who we happen to know in common who are from Kentucky and a lot of other folks that are just, yeah, really doing good work. I guess I picked a good place to move to. And I don't know if everyone who would have that same experience just looking around their own communities, but I really think that there is that richness if you if you look and and I've lived in some really desolate places <laughs> you know to be honest and if you start you know showing an interest in organic farming or just local food or just how to how to grow some of your own you do start attracting similar people and, and before long there's people coming out of the woodwork that you didn't realize oh well so and so knows how to grow cucumbers really well or They may just have their one little thing that they do, but you can start accumulating that knowledge and working with that community. It's part of the advice that I often give folks is just show up. If there's something that you're interested in and you can find a listing in a newspaper, on a website, a meeting, or anything, that if you just show up a couple of times and be present, that you'll start to make those kinds of connections and then realize that there's a lot more going on than you might have ever imagined. When you were putting together this book, having had previous experience with wildlife in your garden and transitioning from creating like a garden sanctuary space to look more deeply at a hobby farm, what did you have in mind of what a hobby farm is, like a particular size, and did it have to extend beyond gardening? And when you were doing that, were you looking at like something that someone could apply to their backyard garden? Or were you really looking at moving into the space of agriculture? Um, I think that the word hobby farm is is used a lot to sort of downplay the importance of what we're doing, which I, I kind of take issue with that because I think providing your own food is probably the most important job you can do, you know, next to raising your own children. But technically, the hobby farmer... I believe is actually a monetary cutoff of, um, you know, like what you consider a professional farmer versus a hobbyist. But I don't think, I don't think most people care about what that, that I think it might be $10,000 a year or something. So it takes quite a bit to, to get there. Most women who are farming are actually making less than a thousand dollars a year off of their farm and so to monetize it really does kind of degrade the importance of it because, you know, these these women and men who are farming or growing their own food, they might be providing 90% of the household groceries, but they may not be selling enough to make it a viable business. So I think um, what I was trying to get at is, you know, you could call yourself a gardener or a farmer. In urban spaces, you know, we like to say urban farmer, but 
we don't really define what that means. Some people say that farming involves animals and gardening doesn't, but gardening involves animals no matter what. You've got worms and pollinators and and uh, rodents probably passing through and doing their thing. So it's a fine line, and I think everybody can just define it for themselves as to what they want to call themselves. I think large-scale farming for market, that's a realm that I don't feel comfortable advising people on because I haven't, I don't have that kind of expertise. But I do, I do have the capability to listen to what other people have to offer and share that and share the resources that, that they've accumulated over their experiences. So the in the book, I, I don't get deep into like financially running a farming business, but I do get into some of the basics that I think a lot of people need to be reminded of that maybe we learned in high school and forgot about how to check out what your monthly income is and your monthly expenses and the basic budgeting kind of thing that is part of being an adult, but often we get we get it really messy as we go on through <laughs> through life. And, and so I just kind of reiterated some of the basics for that, which can help begin a farm business, can help you look at where can you actually grow as far as what what can where can you take a risk as I guess kind of how I want to say it if you look at your finances what you're growing what your farm is producing or your garden has a surplus of is that a place where you could take a risk and call it a business or try to sell it um so I think it's for me it's kind of like taking little baby steps and understanding what what you're doing why you want to do it and then do you want to move on from there? Do you want to make that a little bit bigger? One of the places where I tend to encounter this is when looking at land listings that here in like central Pennsylvania, this kind of mid-Atlantic region, a lot of times a reference to a hobby farm is a size of a space, regardless of what kind of activity is occurring on it. And so what you just shared with us gives kind of a counterpoint to that and a different way to look at this idea of what a hobby farm is because I had not heard about that kind of economic level or determinant for this. Yeah, and I can't remember where I saw that definition. I may have included that in the book, but I'm not sure. And when you look at like the USDA census, most people are, are not really bringing in much money. Most female farmers are bringing in less than $1,000 a year, which it makes it sound like that's, definitely a hobby. <laughs> but, you know, I think a lot of female farmers would would be taking their, quote, hobby a lot more seriously than that, knowing that it's a major part of their life. And that's one of the things that you were looking at, as you say, between growing food and other things, that even though the financial side may only be $1,000, that there can be a very large impact on the family and their lifestyle as a result of these on the farm activities. Exactly. My aunt, when I was interviewing her, she was talking about the value of raising children around animals. And she grew up going to her uncle's farm and riding his horses. And she taught herself how to ride. She didn't have a saddle. She just climbed on and went for it. 
And her kids have grown up around horses, and she's like, they may be expensive to keep and to feed, but they're not as expensive as taking your kids to Disneyland every year or taking them to karate lessons or taking them to, you know, all these other extracurricular things that people feel like they have to do with their kids. But the kids have learned compassion and they've learned self-respect and they've learned self-control and they've learned how to take care of another animal and they've gotten physical exercise and these are lessons that you can't put a value on. She could have been out working and earning enough money to take her kids to Disneyland or something instead, but this was of a, a deeper value than anything monetary. And it's a matter of then of where we want to spend our time and our energy with our family. And I think that also goes into what is your perspective on wealth? And is of course, we do need some monetary accumulations for for physical reasons but if you kind of look at bartering and your community and what you give and receive and exchange and any way all of that together and look at all your different forms of capital then it puts things in perspective and kind of gives you a reality check so I include that in the book along with your you know Here's your financial worksheet. Now put that in perspective. Where does it, how much does it actually matter? As you were doing your interviews, what were some of the other lessons that you learned? I think one of them is that successful women farmers really contribute to their own community and they benefit from that supportive community too. Just looking at statistics, most women farmers do not have another woman farmer on the same farm. <laughs> so they're, they're isolated in the sense that they may be the head of a household, they may have a male partner, but they are not necessarily farming with other women. And you go, you know, look at farm workers, and they're usually working with a community, and, they, and they're kind of all peers. So it's hard for a you know, innovative, resourceful, strong, independent woman to feel like she's got that connection. But it's been really, really important to all the people that I've talked to in their, in my book about, you know, why they do what they do. And, and I think that's another reason it's so easy for them to give me reference to another farmer. And I'm currently working on a video project and I went to interview this flower farmer and she kept talking about three or four other flower farmers. And she just, you know, she was sort of deflect attention off of her and onto them and kept saying, well, you should talk to this person because they do it this way. And you should talk to this other person because they do it this way. And so I really see that sense of we all support each other and we get through things together. And I think that is a type of knowledge that that's the whole reason I wanted to do this book and the video that I'm working on is I feel like the generation that wants to start farming doesn't have that link to the wisdom that our agrarian ancestors of their culture and their way of life, they just commonly shared that information. So I feel like it's kind of my role as a documentarian, as a writer, to explain and connect those pieces 
sort of helping to bridge that gap. It's something I've spoken to in the past is that, you know, I read the Little House on the Prairie books to my children. And I think about all the skills that that family had. And we're only five or six generations removed from that time period. And how much things have changed since then, or even in my own life, my paternal grandfather was a farmer. My father farmed until he was a teenager and then transitioned into construction before leaving you know, the family farm, the family business to go work for the government. And then I look at myself, I grew up with these stories of farming, but I know nothing about it and how quickly that kind of knowledge can be lost. And as you were talking about that, I was wondering, what are the farmers who you met with doing in order to help bring up another generation of farmers or to gain the knowledge that they're interested in or need in order to grow their farm practice? That's a good question. I, I see it in a different ways with different people. Alvina, who's a alpaca farmer, she's got a neighbor who's a teenager and she comes over and helps her. So she's passing on information and connecting with someone who's interested just because she's right there. She's, it's her neighbor. It's easy. She's also got her own children that she's raising on the farm. But for her, I think she didn't know anything about farming when she started. So she went to a farm start course, which our extension agency here in Kentucky is great. They've got this 10-week course that you can go to that kind of starts with the basics and it kind of touches on soil and livestock and writing a business plan and basic horticulture, but also lets you know here are the resources, agencies, and, and organizations. So there's those formal kinds of resources that I think a lot of us turn to when we have a lack of community resources. I mean, these are community resources, but a lack of just non-formal conversational learning by doing. I have also attended myself the Southern Sustainable Agriculture Working Group, which is Southern SOG. And it's a conference that's put on once a year and kind of moves to different locations throughout the Southeast. And, and I'm sure there's similar things like there's Moses in the Midwest and different organizations that bring these conferences. And I think that's another great place to just find a network with the like-minded people. When I went to that conference, I saw five or six people that are in this book. <laughs> they were at that conference, you know, as attendees. And when Susanna was one of the people who hosted workshops on her farm. So the interesting thing about going to a workshop on a farm is that you might get just as much out of meeting people there, your students with you might make great connections that you stay in touch with and support each other from those workshops even more so than what the teacher teaches you. So I think these are kind of our alternative ways of, of learning what we're not learning from our parents or grandparents now. I look at many of the organizations that are either extant or currently coming up that are helping people connect with on-the-farm training and also helping to connect women farmers specifically. Here in Pennsylvania, we have the Pennsylvania Association for Sustainable Agriculture that does a series of regional 
on farm trainings where I've met, you know, dozens and dozens of people who are gaining these kinds of skills. And then through our land grant university here in Pennsylvania, Penn State, the College of Agricultural Sciences has the Pennsylvania Women's Agricultural Network, which is a women farmers focused group that also does more of that on the farm training and bringing women together so that they can network and get to know one another. Those are great. I just recently found out about Women, Food, and Agriculture Network in Iowa, and I got to interview one of the leaders there, and and I really like their model of they basically host workshops to bring women together and help them figure out what their entry point is for becoming sustainable farms, and it really caters to women who've maybe lost a spouse and they hadn't the woman hadn't been a farmer before, and here she is in her later years trying to figure out how to run a farm and how to lease the land and and really need some practical advice and help. And so they connect them with the NRCS and other resources that can help them understand how to do sustainable, conservation-minded practices and also introduce them to other women and create their own networks. So I think any of these institutional kinds of organizations, don't overlook them. I mean, being permaculture-minded, a lot of times we tend to stay in our own little bubble and not go to some of the sort of mainstream kinds of workshops because you may think, you know, that they're going to try to sell you GMO seeds or something. Like, I've had that experience before where I've just kind of stayed away from them. But if I do go to something that is is more standard, basic operating, how to do this thing, then I meet people who have all sorts of different approaches and all have their own perspectives on what is sustainable and what is too conventional for them and what do they want to try. And we start having a conversation and maybe they hadn't heard of permaculture. And, you know, it's not like I'm trying to go out there and recruit people, but what's important is to is to stay open-minded and, and go into a learning situation knowing that you're going to come out with more than you expect, usually. And as I've found over the years, there are lots of resources that are available through these traditional workshops and organizations and the connections that we can make that I think sometimes because of wanting to go a particular route or a particular way, we kind of step away from, as you were saying, and kind of stay in our own little bubble. But for me, some of the recent conversations from the permaculture community is about using this kind of systems thinking approach in order to reach out and start to pull in all of these different resources. We can avoid the GMO seed, but we may learn something about raising corn or wheat or another crop from those organizations that we hadn't encountered before. And we can just blend that with our own practices to create something new that's even more sustainable than just trying to keep going down the road on our own. And I remember not, you know, living in in Texas where I grew up and being surrounded by cattle farms, cattle well, pastures and ranches, you know, out in the east we call them farms, out west we call them ranches, but and I had no clue what what it really took to raise a cow, <laughs> you know, and I was also surrounded by cotton fields and I had no idea what what it was like to try to raise cotton. So as as I grew older and I got interested in farming, and this this is my example, cotton or cows, 
And uh, so I did go to a field day that was put on by the NRCS or a lo- one of the local agencies. And you know, they did take us out in the field and, and they were showing us the GMO cotton and how great it was. And But what I learned was that I had no clue what it took to grow cotton. And here I was, you know, this was a starting point. And so from there, I have a list of questions, and then I can go and research and find out the answers. But without without having any sort of framework, it's really hard to know what, what you do know and what you don't know. So I think that's another reason to get out there and, and go to some of these more conventional sorts of offerings is just to get your motor started, <laughs> get your wheels turning, and figure out where you can go from there. And we can pull on those experiences from people who have been raising a particular crop or an animal for a lifetime, that they have you know, decades of experience that we can't just immediately assume just because we want to raise a cow or start to grow cotton. Yeah, I think it is really important to, to just listen to these people that are our elders, regardless of any preconceived judgments of how they've done what they've done, but hear what their experiences have been and give them the same respect that we would give any anybody that we see as a mentor or, or some sort of hero in our farming life. <laughs> you know, give our own family and our own community that show them that we're interested enough to listen. And as you've shown this interest and explored these different farms and had conversations with farmers, has there been anything that was like a really surprising lesson, something that you learned along the way that was unexpected? For me, I've always been a big animal lover. And, and even as a kid, I, I had a hard time understanding farming practices if they were going to be harmful to an animal. So it's been really interesting to me to just kind of explore the idea of animal husbandry and and what it means to be an owner of an animal rather than a companion. So I think that's another place where I've had assumptions that people who raise animals for meat, that they don't care about them, that that's just a, a product that they're producing. But as I've gotten closer and spent more time, you know, watching people and their animals, I can tell it that I've had it wrong. <laughs> Not necessarily all the time, but, you know, that I can't make that assumption. And my aunt's story in the book about having all of these goats that she'd started with a small herd and she thought, okay, now I've, I know what I'm doing. I can go bigger. And she ended up with a huge mess and a lot of animals died. And if it was me at that point, I would just walk away from it altogether. But she really had calm observation skills and was, you know, very focused on seeing what would happen next and watching how the animals that survived would act. And then noticing that these are the strongest animals and they've got the best genetics and (laughs) they're the most resilient. And I think that's also a lesson for humans because we're not that different from animals at all that we can go through something in a horrible situation that we want to just run away from when it's over but if we can kind of sit with it and pull something out of it it's like 
turning it into compost that becomes gold for us. So that's, I think, one of the biggest surprises for me is, and also what I respect the most about the farming women I've talked with, is their ability to sit back and watch and also reflect on what went wrong. Why did it feel wrong? Maybe it wasn't quite as wrong as we think it was. And now what can we pull out of that? What can we make from it? And that resourcefulness is really, I think, more important to me than any of the the how-to or the, the lessons in science and chemistry and all of that are less important than having resourcefulness and your intuition and the ability to observe and accept feedback. Taking some of those permaculture principles and combining them with some grit and stick to itness and learning those lessons so that those processes on the farm continue to improve and because of that care for those animals that they receive an even better life moving forward. It's something there's a farmer I know who raises chickens and I believe they were quoting someone but it was that they want to give their animals the best life possible except for that one day. You know, it's brought up questions for me that I I used to be vegetarian. I had a hard time becoming a meat eater again, but I had to because of health reasons. And I didn't really get it until I went and worked with a wildlife rehabilitation center and found myself feeding, you know, mice to a hawk. And here's this animal protein that this other animal needs. And uh, it was kind of like the most contact I'd ever had with a freshly dead animal. (laughs) And so after a while, that stuff started to kind of, you know, get into my head where I'm realizing I'm an animal. This might not be, I don't, maybe I shouldn't resist it quite as much as I was resisting. And I still don't know how I feel about raising animals for meat. I think I'm still on the fence about it, but I'm open-minded enough to go and see and experience what it takes to do that because of course we're not all hunting (laughs) all of us that are eating meats but I I think from writing the from the perspective of a feminist looking at farming I think that has made me start re-questioning why we raise animals the way we do and I don't have any answers there (laughs) but I, I can say that it's okay I think to go back and and question again and never be like totally certain that this is the way it it is and should be. And, and um, I guess my basic point is that I questioned it and I found some answers for myself, but now I'm questioning it again. I can understand that there's a professor, Philip Ackerman Leist, and I was listening to an interview with him on NPR. If I remember the context correctly, the university or college that he was working at had raised, I don't remember if it was one or two cows. And then when they had raised them, they were deciding whether or not to slaughter them and serve them in the cafeteria as kind of like to honor this life that they had raised in an agricultural setting or to send them off to a sanctuary somewhere. And ultimately, it was decided that they were going to go ahead and serve these cows. And one of the things that he said was that 
you know, when you have this connection with your food, it's a lot different than going out and buying this anonymous prepackaged meat. I feel like it's it brings it into a, a spiritual place for me to have a connection with an animal and then know that it's going to serve a different purpose. And then I begin to realize that with every plate of food that I have, that this meat had a life before before it met its end and before it came to my plate. And starting to feel like that connection, just sensing it, it doesn't mean that I have to take any action or do anything necessarily differently. It's just an awareness now. You know, it can say gratitude for this animal that gave its life and gratitude for the people who cared for it. And that is a very different perspective than just it's food and I need it. It gives you an awareness and a space for reflection on the food that you're consuming and where it comes from. And not only the systems that are in place to get that to you, but also the way that you can impact those systems and make different decisions between, as you say, when we were starting about the power of growing your own food, and then from there, you know, getting to know your farmers and the others who are providing the things that you don't raise. And I think that writing this book about a women's woman's perspective, and I had another person asking me about why why is that important? Why why should we care about a woman's perspective on food and farming? And I think women are affected more profoundly, or maybe we're kind of the first ones and most seriously affected by environmental pollutants, whether it's air, soil, water, you know, toxins, and showing up in our bloodstream, in our breast milk, in our, you know, ovarian cells, and that women's health is this big alarm system that's been going off telling us things are not quite right. And I noticed that women tend to take better care of their bodies and pay more attention to their bodies than, I mean, this is a huge generalization, but I noticed that they, they are paying more close attention there. You see more women in yoga classes and, you know, being gentle to their bodies than men. And I think that this is why a woman's perspective on our food system is important is because we pick up those subtle cues, not necessarily just because we notice them, but also because our bodies reflect them. And if we eat well, we feel better. And, you know, some of these diseases reduce, the risks reduce. But we also impact the rest of the people in our communities and our lives if we're the ones setting those examples if we are kind of in that typical role of fixing meals for the family and we're choosing organic or we're choosing the sustainably grown food from the local farms and from neighbors and friends and people that we actually can talk to that in itself it's a great responsibility and I think that's why I hesitated to do a woman far- hobby farmer book because I don't think we need to separate the genders or anything. But I, I do think that that's why a feminine perspective is valuable for the whole food system. 
And as I always like to do at the end of a conversation, do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with us that we might not have touched on as we roamed through this conversation today? I'd like to add that my book was, for me, not quite enough. (laughs) So when I got to the end of it, I realized how much more that our elder women have to offer. And as we've touched on the idea of losing the wisdom of our ancestors and being removed from the generations that farm. So right now I'm working on a video project that is just highlighting the wisdom of five different women farmers who are over age 50. So I look forward to being able to share that next year. I hope to have it ready to post on the internet and share at conferences by June or July. And I said next year, but I guess if this is coming out in 2018, it'll be this year. So. And then where will people be able to find that project when it goes live? You can find it on my website, which is Kala Creative, K-A-L-A, creative.net. And right now that website also has both of my books and they're available for purchase there as well as links to all of the blogs that I have written over the past couple of years, which I write about kind of the wilder side of farming and gardening and trying to cohabitate with native plants and native wild animals. So all of that's available at collacreative.net. Well, thank you for joining me today, Karen, to share your story and what went into writing The Woman Hobby Farmer. Thank you so much, Scott. And that was Karen Lanier. Find out more about her and her work at collacreative.net. There you can also purchase your own copy of The Woman Hobby Farmer and find more information about her upcoming documentary. Also, now through March 8th, I'm doing a giveaway for a copy of Karen's book to Patreon supporters. You'll find a link to that opportunity, Karen's site, and everything else mentioned in the show notes. What I love about this conversation with Karen is the reality of what it means to farm, and needing to make the right decision of whether or not we want to. There is a physical toll that comes from farming, and I hear about this from a good friend of mine in the community, who's facing that knowledge right now, and considering how to pass their farm along to someone else to manage so they can move to town, while still continuing to teach the next generation. Suffice to say, we should take a stark look at whether or not deciding to start a farm is our best path. Thankfully, as we discussed, Karen provides tools, worksheets, and stories for helping us to make that very serious choice. Another side, as mentioned, is that, yes, you can make a living at this, and there's plenty of evidence for that possibility. Some of those include past interviews with Jean-Martin Fortier and Joel Saladin, or what I've personally witnessed from Susanna Lane or Holly Brown. But as Karen laid out, there is a price that comes with it. Many people who farm by the numbers do not bring in a great deal of financial income. That's just the reality of this, especially as things scale up and more money is spent on tools, equipment, and labor. But there are other possibilities that arise by shifting in this direction. We secure our food system. We improve the land that we're on. We provide support and comfort for our family and friends. We reconnect to the land and deepen our sense of place by choosing to farm. And to do it on a scale that is more than just a couple of zucchini or fresh, ripe tomatoes for our sandwiches. But to grow on a scale 
for market, and for pantry, for financial as well as social and community needs. The last thing that stands out for me from this conversation, and probably my favorite little insight, is to show up and to listen. Go visit farms, if they're doing a tour, or offering some kind of an on-farm training. When you're there, close your mouth, open your ears, and be a vessel to receive their experiences and wisdom. Attend agricultural conferences if you can, and not just ones on organic or regenerative practices. Go to ones that push your edges and what you think agriculture is or should look like. See if your local extension office or land-grant university has meetings, workshops, lectures, or classes that you can go to and get to meet and network. Join organizations like some of those that Karen mentioned, or one like The Grange, which is a fraternal organization in the United States that encourages families to work together to promote the economic and political well-being of the community and agriculture. And as I found out while writing this, the official name of is actually the National Grange of the Order of Patrons of Husbandry, something I never knew. And I say that because organizations like those and others are full of people who are our allies. They want to promote the science of agriculture and community development and resilience and stability. So many of the things that we as permaculture practitioners espouse when we talk about the ethics and the principles. And we have a lot to learn from them by choosing to go into their space, to listen, and then, once we know enough, to share. So show up, participate, and be a part of your local agricultural and farming community. You and all of us benefit from working together for the future that we want to see. What did you think of this conversation with Karen? Does it give you a different perspective on what you do and don't know about farming and agriculture? About the wisdom that comes from a feminine perspective? Whether you have answers to those or just more questions, I'm here to listen and to give more insight if I'm able. Give me a call, 717-827-6266, email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or write The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. From here, the next episode is a conversation with Jill and Brad from Desert Harvesters about their latest bioregional cookbook, Eat Mesquite and More. Together, the three of us dig into developing a deep sense of place and connection to land and culture through our native and wild foods. Until then, spend each day creating the world that you want to see by listening to Earth, yourself, and your community.